You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider, and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is now available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter One, the 1866 production of The Black Crook. And with us today is the author of that chapter, Professor Sebastian Trainer. Professor Trainer is an assistant professor of theater history at the Pennsylvania State University. As a scholar, he investigates charismatic but suspicious theater historical anecdotes, of which the Black Crook, I'm sure, fits into that category, with an eye toward re-narrating them in more truthful contexts. His essays have appeared in Text and Presentation, Theater Symposium, the Journal of American Drama and Theater, and various edited collections. Professor Trainer, I am so happy that you are with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm truly delighted to be here. Uh, the first question that we ask all of our authors is, what makes your musical, The Black Crook, a key musical? Ah, well, in my case, that's probably an easier answer than most because it's it has um, uh, almost mythical legendary status as being the um, the origin story of American musical theater. It's been uh, inscribed that way many times that, that uh, American theater, American musical theater began with the success of the Black Crook in 1866 on uh, on September 12th. Um, and uh, with this particular spectacle spectacular production um, that that was a, an extravaganza that involved music and dancing. I'm not sure we can quite use the term musical in the year 1866. Um, uh, a, a whole new industry was launched. Um, that's, the, that's the mystique that has been built up around the title. So that's why it's, it's important. And the second question we ask our authors is, why did you want to codify this history? Why did you want to tell the story? You could have chosen any musical, and this is the one that you gravitated towards. Well, you you already read um, sort of my, my research profile. I'm very interested in, uh, and suspicious of, uh, of certain theatrical anecdotes that say, that's a really great story. That story is just, it's so good. There's got to be something fishy uh, about it. Um, and uh, I mean, really, uh, out of nothing at all, suddenly the Black Crook burst onto the scene and then we had American musical theater. 
I don't think that's really how the how artistic evolution uh, works in uh, in my book. Um, and so this is a story that kind of got flagged for for looking into why does the Black Crook get to be called the first musical when it surely had some kind of predecessor. And I am curious, and it's a little bit off topic, but I'm going to ask anyway. Have you ever analyzed one of these suspicious theatrical anecdotes, and then after you've done your research, realized, oh wow, it's actually not suspicious at all. All of this actually did occur. Um, Maybe you haven't found there, it yet. There's always <laughs> there's always an element of yeah, this. The, it's not that the story is untrue, but it's that um, the narrative that gets repeated and repeated is very selective. Uh, and there are um, certain uh, certain of the most sort of outrageous details uh, that get inscribed again and again that sort of erase all of the rest of the history. So oftentimes, what I what I find is that the story is true, but it's not the whole story. And when you when you know the whole story, it makes the the story that gets repeated very often seem seem trivial and, and, and inconsequential and kind of makes, makes me angry that the rest of this, uh, of this story, uh, this richer history is lost. Well, in speaking of richer history, let's talk about some of the titles that you mention as potential candidates of uh, things that actually might have been the first musical or okay. notable earlier achievements. Can mm -hmm. you talk about some of these as early for, as the 1700s, which I found so surprising? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I can I can conjure up the titles, and I, mm -hmm. I would know exactly where to go and look for more information uh, about them. Uh, a kind of groundbreaking 1960s article uh, called "The Black Crook Myth" um, really, uh, really sort of uh, by a music historian, really sort of goes through the previous hundred years of uh, of the fusion of American music uh, and theater on the stage, uh, offering such titles as uh, the disappointment um, as early as 1767 uh, as being uh, a likely starting point for the American musical theater or the archers in 1796, uh, Norman Leslie, show called Norman Leslie in 1836 or the Nyad Queen, particularly in 1841, which in its, in its own way is um, sort of similar to uh, to the Black Crook, but there, there's the Black Crook Plus. But these were um, these tended to be um, plays with music, melodramas that became increasingly musicalized. Sometimes uh, there were um, there were sort of specialty solo numbers uh, by uh, by popular music hall like uh, performers in them. Um, in some of those cases, the uh, the music and songs were actually plot furthering in a way that mm. you do not see in the Black Crook. So there are there are different reasons to make the case for different different ones of them. Then there, then there are things that are against them, like well, this one was 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 an import, or this one happened in Boston, but it didn't happen in New York. So if it didn't happen in New York, it didn't really count. So, um, so for uh, for. For some of those reasons, I mean, the Black Crook as being a, a, a huge commercial success and being in New York and being a musicalized play, but mostly by virtue as being a huge commercial success, has kind of claimed the honor uh, as um, the, uh, the the poster child uh, for the, the first American musical. And it seems throughout American musical theater history, even though there might be shows like The Disappointment or The Archers that come before, unless you have that financial, commercial, commerce stamped seal yeah. of approval, it doesn't really enter the history books. Is that a, a correct? Mm -hmm. 
Um, yes, that's true. Although, you know, a, a, in, in the era of the Black Crook in 1861, uh, Laura Keene's company um, had an enormous success with a show called uh, The Seven Sisters, uh, based on a, a German short story called The Seven Daughters of Satan. And it was it was its own kind of uh, fairies versus demons, spectacular scenery, musicalized extravaganza. Um, and it ran for over 200 performances, uh, which was, um, you know, before the Black Crook uh, eclipsed that. That was the longest run uh, of uh, um, of a theatrical piece in the United States. Not quite in world history uh, at that point, but the Black Crook did take uh, did take that honor. Um, but the difference between 1861 and 1866 uh, was really the American railroads. Um, Laura Keene's show didn't really have the same kind of afterlife as uh, uh, as the Black Crook did because she didn't have uh, the same capability for being able to tour something that was a very large scale production. Um, so when she went on tour, it had to be things that were easily transportable um, and, and huge spectacle was was not really in the offing uh, in that year. But after the American Civil War, after the expansion of the, of the railroads, the industrial capability for being able to, um, to reproduce uh, a mechanical miracle like the Black Crook uh, existed. And that's, that's sort of the difference between why I think we start with the Black Crook rather than with Laura Keene's The Seven Sisters. As we said before we went on the air, one of the interesting things about The Black Crook is in most musical theater textbooks, it has about three paragraphs dedicated to it. And it seems like it just sort of emerged out of the thin air, a singing, dancing, acting, integrated piece of music. And we know that is now not the case. Can you demythify for us the origins of The Black Crook and how it came to be? Yes. And I mean, it's... Uh, I can I can explain them because this part of the story is actually it's it's mostly true um, when you when you read it in in the textbooks and it's such a great story this is part of part of its staying power I'm certain um, so uh, the Black Crook resulted from a combination of two completely unrelated um, theatrical pieces that were being developed by uh, by separate producers. Um, uh, one of them uh, was named uh, William Wheatley, and he ran a theater uh, called Niblo's uh, Gardens, which was uh, the premier theater uh, of its day. Um, it was the most advanced technologically uh, in New York at the time. Its only real rival was the Academy of Music uh, on, uh, on 14th Street um, at the time, and that was, that was extremely high-end and very ritzy. Uh, the um, Nibelow's Garden was not quite as high end, but still a very upscale uh, kind of um, presenting hall. William Wheatley uh, in 1866, uh, do not know what the man was thinking when he agreed to produce this, this 10 year old real clunker of a melodrama. Uh, by a playwright called Charles M. Barris. Um, I say playwright, he was really uh, an actor uh, and kind of a B-list actor um, who had uh, 
been inspired 10 years previously when he saw a, a German opera called the, called the Marksman, and he sort of appropriated its story wholesale, uh, translated the, the opera into, well, I'll just write it in English and, and call it a melodrama uh, and steal all the plot details, but I'll also mix in some elements from other shows like uh, Goethe's Faust or, uh, or the Naiad Queen, the, the scenes of kind of the underwater fairy kingdom um, and other, other plot devices that he liked as a kind of a mix and match and, and turn them all into this um, evil demons uh, versus versus good fairies uh, melodrama that ends in a in a in a big uh, marriage and the show is uh, um, I mean it's 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 neither appallingly bad but it's also not really particularly good and it's kind of standard fare for a melodrama of the era and it uh, fairies and demons and uh, um, and evil sorcerers were 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 stage tropes at the time. They were in in every kind of show that there was. Um, Wheatley was ordinarily a very savvy producer. So why exactly he agreed to this uh, to uh, to produce uh, Barris's show? I know that there was a co-production arrangement uh, involved. Barris was inventing was investing uh, his own money. Uh, in the show. At any rate, he, Barris and, Weekly, and Wheatley signed a contract to mount the show uh, as the opener for the 1866 season at Niblo's Garden. Um, so that's, that's one of the shows that, that channels itself into the Black Crook, and that's the one that gives it its title. Um, Barris's show was called The Black Crook. Mm. There were also uh, two other producers um, who were actually trying to produce at, uh, at the Academy of Music. Uh, and they were named uh, Henry Jarrett and Harry Palmer. And they had seen, they had learned from Laura Keene's Seven Sisters um, that spectacle really, uh, really sells. Mechanical uh, innovation uh, is what's the coming thing in the 19th century when we didn't even have light bulbs, but the, the bicycle is brand new on the scene. Railroads are just being developed. We're getting breakthroughs in medicine and penicillin every day. Some new mechanical uh, miraculous invention is, uh, um, is taking the world by storm and the uh, the newspapers are really kind of coming into their own as a media for popularizing the newfangled inventions of the age. What Henry, what the producers Henry Jarrett and Harry Palmer did uh, was they went to Europe and they said, well, we're not quite up to European standards yet in, uh, in this country. Um, so all of the really innovative uh, new mechanisms of theater, you'll find them in London, you'll find them in Paris, you'll find them in Berlin. And so they went and they toured Europe looking for something that they could just buy and bring to uh, to the Academy of Music to be the, the newest, uh, most advanced uh, show. And they found what they were looking for. Um, in London, they found um, a transformation scene, which was its own sort of specialty uh, entertainment at the time, which would be a very elaborate uh, mechanical scene change that happens in full view of the audience, very slowly transforming um, transforming a, a lake into uh, perhaps uh, a, an island rises uh, rises out of the water and chariots descend from the clouds and uh, and new theatrical mechanisms rotate other things on stage and deliver um, deliver uh, fairies through trap doors and one oohs and ahs over the apparatus of the of the scene changing and they saw that and they said yes this this is the kind of thing that we're looking for to bring to the Academy of Music so they bought the whole thing lock stock and barrel um, and arranged for all of the apparatus that makes the made the 
all, they bought all the scenery and arranged for all the apparatus that made it work to be shipped to New York um, during the course of the summer so that they could install it at the Academy of Music. Um, and then they didn't stop there. Um, they thought we can, we can one up uh, what's being done here. And they hired a, a French ballet company on top of that um, because ballet had made some appearance and had been a big hit, especially the, uh, the particular, the, the tights and the short skirts of the dancers had impressed uh, critics. And they thought, well, we can bring some ballet into this and enhance the spectacle. And they were going to contact, uh, when they got back to New York, Augustine Daly to write them a scenario to bring the scene change that they had, uh, that they had brought uh, together with uh, um, with the French ballet company to, uh, to find some kind of shred of plot to, to make the whole story make sense. Um, but whatever their plans were, when they got back to New York in June, they received the news that while they were away buying all this stuff uh, for the Academy of Music, the Academy of Music had burned down uh, in May, uh, just a few weeks before they got back. So they had the ballet company on its way, all of the all of the scenery and mechanical apparatus were being shipped to them and they had no theater. And they looked around at the theatrical landscape and they, they could you know, count the theaters in existence then as well and say, well, the only other theater in New York City at the moment that can possibly uh, accommodate um, all of this apparatus and innovation is Nibelow's Garden. So they went and they talked to Wheatley um, who already had a contract uh, with, uh, with Barris to produce this um, clunker of a show uh, called The Black Crook. Um, but they also, they, they never had a play. They just, they just had a bunch of scenery and a dance company uh, of, um, of French ballerinas uh, coming to do the show. And so it didn't take them all that long to work out a deal where, all right, they look at the melodrama, they say it can, it can definitely incorporate this spectacular scenery uh, that, um, that Jarrett and Palmer uh, are bringing. Um, and Barris was supposed to be a producer, but they bought him out. Um, and they just decided, uh, how about we give you a royalty for the use of, of your play, which is the thing that he wanted in the first place. So he was perfectly happy to say, yes, I will, I will be glad to take a royalty and you can, you can produce uh, the show. And so um, and so they actually uh, did a lot of renovation um, to uh, Niblo's garden, even though it was fairly well equipped. They made some additional changes to be able to accommodate the new scenery, investing about 25,000 into the, the actual theater itself, which was an enormous sum of money uh, uh, at that time. And then their, their expenses also uh, had an outlay of about another 20, 25,000 for all of, the, all of the costumes and the talents and whatnot of, of pre-production cost of just to open the doors on day one was about $50,000, which was more than twice anyone had previously spent uh, on, uh, on a production in New York City at the time. Was there in the press at this time or word of mouth in, in the streets that something special was going to be opening at the garden somewhat mm -hmm. soon? Well, this was also the age of P.T. Barnum. Um, and I mean, these these producers, um, Jarrett, Palmer, Wheatley, uh, certainly um, they, they took a leaf out of his book uh, and they regularly had kept the press updated, had them walked through the theater as it was being remodeled. There were uh, there were uh. preview pieces on all of the new mechanical innovations that were coming. Uh, the the capabilities of the new stage that they were modifying for the show. They advertised how much everything cost as though the price of the production were its, were its main attraction. 
And I know we'll talk about this at the end, but I think we can draw a clear line, can't we, from what they're doing to producers in the 1980s and 1990s on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So they're, they're clearly... Um, What's, what's featured here is not the star performer or, or the talent. The star of the show becomes the spectacle of, uh, of the theater and all of the uh, expensive apparatus that we can deploy and having a, a gigantic animatronic King Kong on the stage. One goes to go and see a giant animatronic <laughs> King Kong uh, move about or goes to see uh, a whole bunch of people on roller skates as trains uh, uh, on a track that you know entirely loops the theater in a custom built uh, in a custom built theater. Um, as much as uh, uh, as the story or the music, the spectacle there is is what's drawing an audience in. So, what was the reaction on opening night when audiences got to see this thing they'd been uh-huh. he- hearing about for so long? Uh, I'm going to paraphrase um, the the Tribune's uh, review here. It was something like. Um, the scenery is magnificent. The ballet is beautiful. The drama is rubbish. Um, and it lasted five and a half hours. And they, oh. got, that time, they got that time down to about four hours. Uh, um, uh, but uh, um, it, strangely, the five, m- many people stayed to the end because the spectacle was, uh, was so no one has ever seen uh, no one in America has ever seen this before. So many reviewers are writing uh, like nothing ever seen on this continent uh, in the past, um, describing lavishly all of the the amazing uh, scenic transformation, which ends the first act and then the second act and then uh, and then the third act and especially the the finale of the show. Particular thing that they uh, they also talked about was they were very impressed by um, by. The production incorporated over, in addition to the French Ballet Company, a, a, a very kind of large um, chorus of uh, American actresses was also hired uh, to be uh, the, the equivalent of spear carriers. Um, well, they'd be, they were fairies or demons or, or of some sort, but they were all, uh, um, they were all wearing, uh, wearing, the 1866 equivalent of uh, of bodysuits and very little else, um, and uh, this was um, this was more exposed. No flesh was exposed because the the bodysuits uh, completely covered all of their arms and their legs. But nonetheless, it entirely revealed the form of the performers who were on stage, um, and uh, some of them didn't even wear skirts. Um, um, so this was. Uh, but they were a ballet company. So on the one hand, this is a, a, a profane display of, uh, of the female form on stage. On the other hand, um, it's excused because it's, it's European and mm-hmm. it's art. Um, yes. And so what would be, what would be called uh, burlesque or <laughs> a, a, a low class uh, entertainment appropriate for you know, taverns and just, um, uh, not very refined venues is suddenly artified by being put um, on stage in a, a good versus evil melodrama where where good is going to triumph over evil being performed by an, a very artistic uh, European company. But at, at one and the same time, it's more exposed uh, legs on the American stage than anyone has ever seen before, at least certainly not in a respectable, respectable <laughs> venue.
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And this idea of being able to show the female identifying body in uh, little clothing or like you said, showing the form, showing the form in the silhouette. Is this something that will inspire Florenz Ziegfeld later on? Oh my, uh, yes. I mean, there's there's a clear and, di- and direct line from um, from what the Black Crook innovated, the innovation of the Black Crook, and the idea that you know sex is going to be very profitable. I've got I've got a quote here from somewhere from one of the producers. Uh, um, Legs are staple articles uh, and will never go out of fashion while the world lasts. Um, that was. Uh, uh, and he he went on a, a bit more um, about uh, how he, uh, how this will this will make a lot of money in the show and he will give New York audiences uh, a lot of them and and he believes that on that basis his show will run for a very long time and he was right. <laughs> what was the length of the run of the Black Crook? Uh, four hundred and seventy four performances, but they closed it early. It was still it was still highly profitable at the time that they closed it. Um, they. Uh, I mean, it was it was now drawing an out of town audience, but the show, it got an update every six months uh, or so. Like musicals of the 1920s, it had sort of set bits that they could just retire uh, a a piece of the spectacle and put in uh, like in the second year, in the in the summer of the second year, um, they put in a, um, uh, a a baby ballet, which involved um, over 75 uh, small children who were between three feet tall and three and a half feet tall doing as a, as a military drill team um, in, in the fairy kingdom, doing, uh, doing an elaborate marching number. And that replaced one of the, one of the ballets that they retired. Uh, so they would update the show with new spectacles to try and get, get repeat audience. And the press would come back and they would review the, the new innovation of the show. Um, and plus people were coming, uh, it was a draw from all over the country uh, of folks coming into New York because they, they had heard about this show and they, they must have it. Dare I ask dramaturgically, did anybody ever say, why are there babies marching around in, in this story about fairy queens? Um, or, or were they just so dazzled by what they were seeing? Uh, logic, what goes out the window? Um Yes, they did say that. And they said the second thing as well, which is to say, um, this has nothing to do with the story. We really have no idea what what the play is about. And if you didn't already know it from before, you certainly wouldn't get an idea. But we don't care because it's so amazing to look at. 
was there singing in this show? Where is the music element to call it a musical? So the the music uh, is mainly um, composed for the ballet. So uh, the, the music is mostly danced to rather than sung, but it does have some music hall numbers uh, in it as well that, uh, that can be changed. Um, on, on opening night, uh, a, a music hall um, B-list star, climbing star uh, named uh, Millie Cavendish um, got uh, positive reviews for a song that she sings in the first act called uh, You Naughty Naughty Men. Um, that is just, it really doesn't have anything to do with furthering the plot, but it's a musical hall number that gets, get, that gets dropped in. It wasn't custom written for the show. Um, it was just a popular, popular tune of the day. And there are some other musical hall numbers that get inserted at various points through, uh, through the play that are, are sung in a similar way. But really the draw was the, was the ballet and the spectacle. So is it safe to say that any music that was being sung in The Black Crook came from pre-existing material nothing was being written specifically for a vocalist. Um, I don't think we can say that none of it. I do believe that the house composer, uh, I, I know that the house composer po composed some of the dance music uh, for, uh, for the Black Crook. Uh, and I think uh, some, some songs were specially composed for it, but they, they went by the wayside. Um, and uh, it certainly, combined uh, pre-existing material with some some things that were custom created for that first show. And for audiences, you know, as as we've said before, the myth in the history book is that people saw this show and they said, oh, my gosh, you can have talking, singing and dancing all happening at the same time in service to the story. Did people see that when they first saw the Black Crook or were they just so dazzled by the set and the human body that 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 aspect of it never really entered their minds. Um, I think it's the I think it's the second thing. Uh, the, uh, the the black crook to to my mind um, it, it it does innovate spectacular production uh, in America. It certainly in, innovates um, theatrical touring as uh, as a model for every very successful and elaborate show that would tour. Um, after it, but it really feels like the the end of the era of a kind of a German melodrama or um, mm. or French inspired uh, fairy um, uh, fairy ballet, um, both of which were you know, popular throughout the nineteenth century. But this feels more like the end of of that. I mean, it's the subject matter uh, of the material is already. Uh, out of date and passe at the time that the Black Crook uh, premieres. But what's not out of date is all of the scenic spectacle and the mechanical innovation uh, of the show. One of the things that I wanted to ask you earlier was, can you tell us a little bit about the other types of performance that was going on around the same time as the Black Crook? What other genres mm. could an audience member go and see? We're, we're in the era of the booths. Uh, um, who are uh, particularly known for their Shakespeare performances. Blackface minstrelsy is uh, very popular in the 1860s and continues to be so, um, waning somewhat in popularity by the turn of, uh, of the century. Um, uh, music hall uh, variety shows uh, are, um, are going on. And what's also coming into existence is kind of the proto vaudeville. I mean, mm. it's, the, it's the touring that will allow vaudeville to happen, but the kind of the, the, the 
continuous show that consists of um, of short acts um, that run uh, that run perpetually that are just specialty numbers that are booked in a in a theater are also um, are also there. You just come in whenever um, you watch the show. You sit down for as long as you want. You leave uh, whenever. If you stay long enough, you'll see the acts. Uh, you will see the acts repeat. One of the things I found so fascinating about your your chapter that I was not aware of until I was I was reading your work is the New York Herald and uh, James Gordon Bennett. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about him and what his thoughts were on uh, the Black Crook? I'm gonna find uh, find some quote to read at you because he was really good at at uh, at, uh, at thunder and bluster. Uh, uh, against it. Uh, oh, I wonder how much of him I quoted. I, yes, the you, you yes you quote him in the book, and when you quote him, I feel like I'm reading a fire and brimstone mm-hmm. sermon. Uh, so I'm so I'm so interested to hear w- what got under this man's collar so much. Um, well, there's an interesting story there, uh, and it's it's a kind of a, a a long segue. I mean, in in part, I think that his uh, his views of um, uh, he, he wrote, I, I quoted something like, uh, on the stage of Sodom and Gomorrah, they had such shows as the Black Crook. But here in New York, all decent citizens should, should cry it down and everyone involved in the creation of this show should be arrested and driven out of town. And every week he would write another editorial against the Black Crook like that, which so far as I can tell, um, just made people want to go and see the abomination for themselves. And, um, but I, on, on the one hand, I think that his conviction is um, is sincerely held. But at the same time, um, one of the the earliest historian of the Black Crook, um, uh, the Naked Truth: The Inside History of the Black Crook, published in 1897 by Joseph Witten, who was the um, the accountant, the financial manager for Niblo's Garden. He wrote this this story of the Black Crook, and he has his own theory about uh, about the um, about the Bennett's opposition to the show. Bennett uh, uh, was actually a friend of uh, of Wheatley's, but no New York theater advertised in his newspaper because of a of, of a feud um, led by P.T. Barnum. Um, that P.T. Barnum was having uh, with Bennett, where Barnum got all theatrical managers to boycott doing any advertising in Bennett's paper uh, whatsoever. Um, and uh, in in parts, uh, um, it seems as revenge against that, uh, Bennett would sometimes get on a soapbox uh, and um, shout down the show's uh, uh, at the theaters that weren't advertising in his paper. This is a theory that was uh, that was advanced by um, by by Witten in his history of the Black Crook, um, based on the idea that well Wheatley and Bennett were were friends, and Bennett recognized that that you know bad press might in fact lead to ticket sales. I mean, if it's the case of um, of negative press deliberately being used to boost to give the, the box office boost is probably the first documented one in uh, in history, um, but uh, uh, but Bennett was certainly a, uh, a a moralizer, and I think that that part of uh, of his writing is uh, is sincere conviction, and it may also be the fact that he recognized that his sincere conviction as a newspaper man was in fact going to boost the box off bottom line for Wheatley. Once the Black Crook had made its name in New York City, 
were they able to tour the show with all of its technological requirements throughout the United States or even throughout the world? Um, both yes and no. Um, the Black Crook by its original producers was, it was closed early when it was still making money because they, had, they were going to replace it with another spectacle that was more or less you know, this, the same kind of thing called the White Fawn, which uh, they, they closed the theater and reopened as soon as they possibly could with another show that was as much like it as, uh, as they could make it because they thought, well, people have seen this one so much, so we're going to give them something new. Um, but franchises for the Black Crook um, had been... Uh, had been allowed in various cities by uh, by Barris, the the copyright holder, um, and it's uh, really inside uh, of a very few years um, the other producers, such as the Caralfis, um, came along and uh, purchased the the rights to create a, a touring spectacular version of the show, and then that's. That's what sort of really became known. There was there was the already established legend of the Black Crook name, and then the Caralfis, mm. uh, uh, some a few years later, put together a really spectacular, truly touring um, version of the show. But this is now a, a separate producer who's uh, remounting um, a product that is they that's not exactly the same thing as what was on the stage in New York, but it, it is its own equally spectacular production. And that gets toured around. And um, many historians uh, will conflate these two shows as being, well, it's the Black Crook, it's the Black Crook. Um, it's the same thing. Well, it is, but, but it isn't. Um, and that begins to be toured around and there are other imitators and other, uh, and other companies. And the Black Crook itself is the product. So that's what, what tends to, um, to be the draw. Uh, productions are put together that utilize the new railroad system to be able to go into places and uh, um, with um, the state of publicity and communications being what it was through telegraph and through and through newspaper um, and uh, P.T. Barnum, Barnum style hyperbole. Um, one tends to think, oh yes, I have seen the production of the Black Crook that's in New York, but not, not really, not exactly. But for the next 30 years or so, the show is continually revived, it's played everywhere. It really does become the, the first um, offering of, the idea of Broadway doesn't exist yet, even though Nivelo's Garden technically is on Broadway. Um, the Black Crook does become the first uh, Broadway spectacular to really reach an, an audience that is the entire nation, where it, it has universal name recognition around the country. Um, and it's able to achieve that through the agency of the various touring companies. Mm. And I know that you said between 1870 and 1895, uh, New York saw 15 revivals. Mm -hmm of this particular show. Mm -hmm. uh, how much money did this show make for its producers? Well, I, I don't know all told in, uh, in, that, in that period, but I do know what the number was for, the, um, for, the, for just the run at Nidlow's Garden. Yes, yes, that, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I remember what the contemporary equivalent was because I had to. I had to do the conversion. Yeah, and what is the contemporary equivalent? Uh, the contemporary equivalent was it made ten million dollars, which oh. um, to us it, it sounds like kind of small change um, today. But but that that amount of money was completely unthinkable 
six hundred and sixty thousand dollars in eighteen sixty six, and I do the equivalent. That's that's the equivalent of uh, of of ten million dollars uh, in that time. Uh, wow! For their investment of fifty thousand. This is very. See, and they tell you you can't make money in show business, and look look at that. You just need a black crook to <laughs> to get you where you need to go. Now we know that the black crook for us is the foundation of our particular book because everything is going to spring from this. Can you tell us what did the black crook as a whole or elements of the black crook open the doors to that we now have still with us in the 21st century? Oh yes. Uh, well, we already, uh, already touched on, um, uh, on the idea of it's, uh, it's, it's innovating the idea of spectacular scenery, that, uh, that the new mechanical marvels that we're able to achieve in the theater are the reason for going to theater in the first place. Um, that's, uh, there, there isn't film uh, at the time. There isn't uh, anything, any place else you're going to see a spectacle. I mean, you can see a free spectacle of the, of the railroad trains going by, but uh, the, the, the kind, of, kind of large scale entertainment of um, an avalanche happening or uh, a, a train crash on stage, these are, the, these are the mechanical marvels that theater is beginning to develop at the time. And they become the, the centerpiece of entertainment. And it's really the black crook spectacle that uh, that pioneers that. And of course, that we've already briefly spoken about King Kong or maybe Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark or um, uh, Starlight Express or uh, or or Cats. But these uh, entertainments where where the spectacular gimmick is really pulling the audience into the theater is, is one of the legacies that we get from the Black Crook. Um, another, we've already talked about the uh, the scantily clad ballet, um, and just the very idea that uh, that that sex sells um, is identified by a number of theater historians as the Black Crook is the first sort of major step of making the chorus girls a fixture of uh, of the American musical theater. And we also touched on how that leads to uh, uh, down a path toward the Ziegfeld Follies. Uh, uh, especially of 1920s and, and 1930s, which um, which was a, a very kind of elegant packaging of um, of a, a procession of, of of showgirls in lavish display, and so both the display and uh, and the uh, and the showgirls are a, a, a major part of that entertainment. That is. You know, was there ever a plot to the Ziegfeld Follies? I, I expect there was something which unified it all, but it was probably more along a theme than uh, than any particular story that's being delivered. But uh, beyond those two uh, elements of the idea of you know, the the infusion of the importance of of the chorus girl and uh, um, the the spectacle that can be achieved when producers are pushed to the very limit of their resources uh, in, uh, in investing and innovation. Beyond those two things, I think the real legacy is, um, is it changed the paradigm with which producers think about, um, think about the theater. What the Black Crook did was its profitability, its profitability so far exceeded the run that it had in the theater of Niblo's Gardens. 
Um, producers would usually think, all right, what am I going to do for, for my show in this season? Oh, wow, the show ran for the entire season. That was a good season. Or the idea that it could run for 16 months. No one had ever even heard of that before. Um, so runs on that scale were, were unimaginable until the Black Crook achieved that. But when the Black Crook achieved that, knowing that that thing was possible, then that became the goal um, for producers. And seeing that the Black Crook had an aftermarket in uh, in the tours and with the railroads. Now, again, this became the aim of producers, not to create the show for a particular theater in a particular time in a particular space, but to create a show that's going to be a national phenomenon and run for, in various forms, for 30 years. And that leads us to the kind of global franchises that are conceived that way from the beginning, um, like uh, like the the Lion King, um, which is produced in in Madrid and in Tokyo and in New York, with each production in in whatever language uh, uh, it needs to be in being as as identical as possible. Or sometimes they have to be built in custom built theaters, but that kind of of global franchise of an entertainment product is a type of thinking that was enabled by the Black Crook. And I think basically it is for that reason um, that, uh, that the Black Crook manages to hold on to its place as having been the very first musical, even though it wasn't really a musical as we would identify by the time we get around to a kind of integrated book musical of, of the golden age, such as Oklahoma, where the, where, the, where the choreography and the book and the songs all further the plot in a unified way. Professor Trainer, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, I, I said this before we went on the air and I will just, I will say it on the record. There are so many it's almost like a Rashomon uh, of versions of what was the Black Crook? What happened to the Black Crook? How did this happen? Your chapter, I think, is the definitive history of this particular show and its impact on the American musical theater. So thank you so much for t uh, taking this story and guiding it with such clarity and with, su with such um, intelligence. Thank you so much for that. It's a fabulous read. Oh, my pleasure. It was uh, it was a privilege to have the opportunity to look into this and, and a reason to finally, cl finally clarify the history of this show uh, for for myself and, and my students. Great. And now I think for for countless readers. So thank you for that. Um, listeners, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about The Black Crook, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.